This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast Season 6 with your host, Dan the Fitness Man. Thank you for tuning in. We are excited to have you. This is the podcast that is dedicated to hard work, disciplined decisions, and year-round training in the pursuit of the best possible version of ourselves. We leverage elk hunting to create a pathway. We understand that time is finite and we cannot squander a second. We must be leaders at our home. We understand that faith is our number one priority. Then family, then fitness, then health, then wealth. Our year-round disciplined decisions help us leave a legacy for our family to follow. You will leave here motivated, inspired, and educated. We bring on a wide variety of guests subject matter experts so that you can tune in get what you need to get and continue on your journey we are blessed to call ourselves elk hunters season six here we go ozzy 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 what up guys nick morton coming on the podcast today this dude is in australia man he's one of the dudes behind the nexus Arrows, he's one of the dudes behind the Ozcut Broadhead. He's one of the dudes behind a supplement company I can't even remember the name of. You know, I think he owns a bow shop, and he's just like the coolest, chill dude ever. You guys are going to love this episode. We're talking to a down-under bow hunter. It's going to be bad. Hey, here we go. What would you get if you had a $5,000 Vortex Optics shopping spree? For me, I'm getting UHD 10s or 12s. Definitely going to get a rangefinder like the 3000 or the 4000 Razor. What would you get? Are you in the market for a new spotter or a rangefinder from Vortex? Maybe some of their tripods that are made out of carbon because they're super light? You could probably get all that and then some, plus an additional 500 bucks to shop at Vortex online apparel store, Vortex Wear. All you got to do is head on over to joinvortexnation.com for your chance to win. 
That's joinvortexnation.com. Sign up for their e-newsletter. Takes like 10 seconds, no catch. You're automatically entered. The deadline is March 31st. Get on it. Recording in process. Okay, Nick, what time is it right now in Australia? It is uh, currently 11 a.m. Thursday in the future. Dude, I'm still figuring out Wednesday, man. I got an hour left till it's five o'clock. How's tomorrow looking, man? How's it going over there on Thursday? Every, every day is a good day, man. It's um, it's pretty crazy when we speak with you guys. You're like, oh, how's your Wednesday doing? It's like, oh, man, we're past that. <laughs> That's so rad, man. Um, this technology's badass because I didn't know if it would work well, but I can see you. You can see me. Crystal clear. Good to go. Pretty awesome. Technology as well. Like, never met you in person, yet here we are. About to have this conversation crazy right i know okay well dude you're a bow hunter man like i follow you on instagram have for a long time you live a wild life bro like we got we got some stories that you got to tell to the uh, to my listeners but uh first things first introduce yourself uh like typical podcasts and then um i'll ask you some questions i just want to get to know you man for sure man yeah so pretty well like you summed it up um i'm a bow hunter from australia bow hunting is 100 my passion man I've had a bow in my hand since I was about five years of age. You know, I was running around in the bush as a kid, making bows. Bow hunting has evolved. It's gone from an interest to a hobby, to a passion, to, I guess, a part of my identity. It's what I do. It's who I am. And it just makes me feel right, you know. Um, I guess I've turned it into a business and put that entrepreneurial side into bow hunting. But me as a person, I just love being in the outdoors. I feel as if it's my purpose and it's my calling in life. You know, anything outdoors I'm drawn to fishing, hunting, being outdoors in general, I feel as if is a part of my self identity, I guess, you know, if I'm not here at work or in the office, you'll generally find me in the mountains or possibly on the water. It's just flat out who I am. Bow hunter, outdoorsman. I live for that life. So right now it's January. Uh, we we're just in the middle of winter. I mean, we're starting to get a little bit of daylight, like extra a day, but are you like peak hunting season in the fall right now in Australia? So we're Northern Southern Hemisphere is polarizing. You guys in the middle of winter, we're in the middle of summer right now. It's actually my birthday today, my 30th birthday. Happy birthday, 3-0. Thank you. I don't know how I feel about being 30, but you know, here we are. Um, so our hunting season, we have a couple of seasons, but you're going to talk typical deer hunting season. My area, I'm in New South Wales, for those guys that know, just north of Sydney, um, we have fallow and red deer. That's our typical deer species that we hunt. In Australia, there's six deer species, fallow and reds being the most prominent. Hunting season for those guys, mid-March through, through till the end of April is when we're ramping up towards. Um, whereas you guys, you know, it's August, September, October, moving on through the later seasons for your whitetail and things like that. We're kind of March through till June is our typical hunting season. But in Australia, it's very different to what you guys are used to. For the most part, there is no tags, there is no seasons, there is no licenses, and we're hunting introduced feral species that are otherwise eradicated. All of our all of our game animals are introduced feral species. Unbelievable. Yeah. So with that, it kind of brings us a lot of opportunity. I feel very fortunate in the fact that we get to hunt, in essence, 365 days a year. And... With that, I think you get a lot of experience. You get to really learn. And it's funny, like you said, we're coming into hunting season. Yes, it's the rut coming up for us. My mindset, there isn't a season. It's 
constant year round. There's always certain hunts we can do, you know, March, April, we're looking at hunting red deer. For me personally, I love hunting mountain boars, which we're probably going to chat about a little bit in depth later. Typically the cooler winter months, you know, June, July, August, awesome for those guys in the hills when those tents drop and the days shorten up. And then you go through to like the hotter months where we look at our northern part of the country where it dries out in our, in our dry season. That's when you're hunting the buffalo and the pigs and everything like that up north in those dry seasons. So I guess that's a, a typical season for an Aussie, but there's hunt, you can hunt deer year-round, you can hunt pigs year-round, all that sort of stuff. It's not an allotted time slot that we have, which would be pretty crazy for you. I have no desire. I told my wife this actually. I told her I was podcasting with you from Australia. And I was like, and by the way, I have zero desire to go see Europe or to like, and no offense to Europe people or Europeans, like I don't have any desire to go anywhere in the entire world except for Australia or New Zealand or both. Like for whatever reason, I hate flying. Um, and if I'm going to be in an airplane for a long time, I'm going to your neck of the woods. You know what I mean? I'm going to the bush. The bush, man. That's it. So tell me about your... Um, recent uh little trip you went you went north and you went and hunted the dry season right like you caught the dry season the early part of it and went on a big road trip yeah so um in october just gone uh myself and my business partner jack crick um we went up to the northern territory hunting buffalo so we've got onto a private concession up there just a bit over five hundred thousand acres of land that we're hunting um private land which is a cattle farm up there essentially and it is in the wild west of australia you know it is hundreds of miles between towns middle of nowhere it's largely unfenced animals just roam where they please and it's untouched wild country so it's about two 2200 miles north of me if i'm getting that equation right there um so about 3500 kilometers so just under 40 hours drive up there we spent just under a month up there hunting exploring charting out the place and it was one hell of an adventure man um the later it is in the wet season, obviously the water's drying out. So those water resources are really concentrating in and those animals have to be by that water. We, we were getting days there. It'd be 110, 1.15 every single day, you know. So water is life up there. So the more concentrated and scarce that water is, the animals, because the property is so large, you're hunting a 500,000 acre parcel of dirt. That's all the same except for where the water is you need those animals to be on those pockets. You know, you're hunting those dry creek beds, you're hunting billabongs, you're hunting dams. Anywhere that holds water will hold animals within that vicinity. Um, so basically we spent the first week and a half, we would just be driving in the car, looking at the GPS, mapping out the property, marking dams, marking rivers, marking billabongs, marking puddles of water, doing dry runs out to what we seen on the map was a dam, but it's dry, you know, figuring out the property. And we done we done 10 days of just exploring we, we did shoot a few good animals in that first 10 days, but that was more exploratory. I shot my bull on the fourth day in, um, but it was that second half of the trip where we really started honing in and go, okay, there's boars hanging on this dam. Um, this is where the buffalo are hanging. We really sort of honed in on the hunting there. Um, I think at the completion of the trip between myself and Jack, we shot two bulls, so a buffalo bull and a scrub bull, which is a wild feral cow, which I would call our most dangerous game animal um, that a lot of people don't really understand um, and probably 20 plus boars for that trip. So it was epic, man. Um, I cannot wait to get back there next year and sort of implement all that knowledge and fast track 
that hunting to knowing where to go. It's like, okay, I know I've got to hunt this creek system. Don't waste my time over here, blah, blah, blah. So it was largely an exploratory trip, but we got a lot of good hunting in, but it was hard, man. Like it was hot. There's no reprieve from it. You're sleeping overnight and I'll speak in Celsius here because I'm going to get the conversion wrong. It would be 30 to 33 degrees of a night and at two in the morning you get a bit of a cool breeze and it drop down a little bit and we're getting two, three hours of sleep a night for a month. We're drinking 15 litres a day, which I think is about four and a half gallons, I'd, I'd yep. like to say. You know, just hardcore, not comfortable conditions, you know. Um, but those animals thrive it. Incredible. Yeah, you would be out there, you know, and there's a buffalo that weighs 2,000 pounds black in the sun and it's thriving standing there in 115-degree heat just cruising around unfazed where we're walking 200 yards to a dam and I need to drink a litre of water just to not die. Insane. Um, okay, so I've seen some video footage um, of how much cattle is in that Northern Territory. It's it's unreal. Um What's the uh, what's the situation with the feral cattle, cattle and water buffalo? How do those species like all interact and and whatnot? Yeah, so pretty well. There's the breeding herd of the cattle which are managed, um, but up there the properties are largely unfenced and wild, so the cattle are roaming in in between properties. And then you have another subset where we will have private land which is more fenced and contained and run commercially. And then we'll have the indigenous parcels of land that our Aboriginals have access to. So that's far less commercial and it is just pure wild animals, feral animals roaming around. So you'll have buffalo herds roaming with feral cattle and breeding stock cattle or commercial cattle, you know. So um, typically those blocks will muster aerially with helicopters. So they'll muster all their cattle in, but mixed in with their 15,000 head of cattle they've got, there might be 1500 wild cattle mixed in with there so that can be cows and also bulls that come roaming in so they take what they can get realistically if there's feral cattle on there they will come in with those cattle but they they will all intertwine and mingle together um but there is a market for catching feral bulls you know so pure wild unbranded clean skin bulls that will come in to try and mate with the cows hang with the herds anything like that they go out on mustering or catching missions and they might catch 20, 30, 40, 50 bulls over the span of a couple of days, which is extra revenue for those properties as well. But it's it's crazy to see like there's a wild bull just cruising around wherever he wants to go. He's not, he has no boundaries. He will go anywhere. And then mixed in with that as well is the buffalo that are naturally occurring there on these places as well. So they're a resource, whether it's uh, hunting, there's a lot of hunting outfits that are paying money to bring hunters in to those properties. They're paying a trophy fee for the buffalo and that's justifying the numbers that way. There's also the buffalo meat market. Um, and then there's also guys that will shoot buffalo for pet meat as well, um, which I think there isn't as much going on because the price of buffalo has gone up. But I believe they're limited. They can't utilise all of the animals because there's a carcass weight uh, limit. They have to hit a certain threshold to be able to export or sell those buffalo so i think typically it's just the bulls that they can sell the calves and the younger animals won't make that carcass weight so they can't do anything with those so dependent on the property there a lot of those places will want hunting outfits brought in on there that are paying them a trophy fee per bull and they're making more money for that and having that resource on the property so it's pretty good in that regard how many crocodile crocodiles did you run into on your expedition there uh so you don't see too many, but they see you. Um, 
So where we were hunting was on a major um, river that lead, it was relatively coastal, leads to the ocean. The more coastal you get to the Northern Territory, the higher density of that crocodile population you get there. Where we were, there was a mix of freshwater crocodiles, which grow to about 10 feet. They're pretty harmless. Um, they don't really attack people. Maybe if you stepped on one, one's going to nip you, something like that. But they're not aggressive and not going to actively hurt a human, you know. Whereas you get those salties and you do not mess with them. They're, they are a dinosaur. You do not mess with those things. Um, we, well, I remember when we first got to the property, speaking to the owner and everything like that, I was talking with Jack and Jack was a little bit scared of crocodiles, hadn't been up there before. And like, oh, is there any crocodiles here? And he's like, oh, just behind the house there, there's a four and a half metre croc, you know, that's like a 13 footer. Looking up, oh, there he is, 80 yards away. You know, and like that crocodile would kill you. Um, you, you cannot swim in the water, you cannot go near the water's edge and you have to treat every puddle of water as if it's got a saltwater crocodile in there because you just can't be complacent with it, you know. You'll be 20 miles from the main tributaries or waterways, there'll be a puddle with a croc slide in. And it's like, how do they get out here? And a crocodile in the wet season, when all the water basically just turns into a floodplain, they will travel vast distances and get to places that you wouldn't even expect to find. It, it's wild. Like they are proper dinosaurs, man. And they could be three yards away from you and you won't even know they're there. Like they are an apex predator that's evolved from millions of years ago, you know, and they've, they've got a down pat, you know, like they take pigs, buffalo, cattle, people, unfortunately at times as well, but you don't typically see them, but they see you. Okay. So you, you guys said you, you, you smoked a couple buffalo, some other species as well, but definitely boars up there in the Northern Territory, which is awesome. I want to talk to you uh, from bow hunter to bow hunter. There's a lot of schools of thoughts about arrow setups and, and broadhead selection and penetration and all that stuff. So just, I don't really care about all that. I just want to know, break down your setup from the bow to the arrow that you brought on that expedition. Okay. So it's funny that you say that the one that I brought on that expedition, I tinker so minimally. I am still running my Helix Ultra that I've had from 2018, 19. I can't remember. I love that bow. Um, it's juiced up a little bit. We had it at about uh, 83, 84 pound. I tell a lie as well. I took my new Venton Pro that Evan sent me. Um, I had that as well. But typically my bow setup that, that I'm running for 95% of my hunts over the past few years has been my Hoyt Helix Ultra. It's been on about 82 to 85 pound. With that, I'll run a 250 spine Nexus shaft, which is my brand, which is a micro diameter shaft. Up the front of that, I'll have a 75 grain titanium outsert. And on the front of that, I've had a 150 grain three blade Ozcut up in the front, which is a one inch cutting diameter. So it's, it's a little bit smaller than your typical three blades at an inch and an eighth and has that shallower approach angle to give you that bit more penetration on the more heavily armored animals I hunt. So I'm all about having penetration and a quiet arrow over a flatter shooting arrow. Um, and for myself in particular, I don't take long shots at all. Like a lot of the animals we're hunting, the terrain sort of allows for closer hunts and things like that, especially in the mountains, you know, you're using cover and dead ground to pop up over the rise and I'm taking a 15 yard shot type thing. So I don't need that flat shooting arrow. I'm shooting things that whether it's my mountain boars and they have two inches of fighting pad, an inch of crusted mud over the top of that before I even have to get into vitals. They're built like a tank. So I want an arrow that's really going to get in there. So my setup is really honed in on the penetration side of things. So that total arrow weight for that setup there, I'm a 29 and a half inch draw length. 
I have my arrows cut down. I have quarter inch hanging over the rest. So they're nice and short there. Gets that FOC up a little bit. Um, that total arrow weight comes in at 570 grains. And that's my setup. I'll use boars, deer, buffalo, everything. It's all the same setup. Out of an 82, 83 pound bow. Yes. With a pretty decent draw length. I mean, that's so much energy. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And see what, what, why I like that. And I cop a little bit of flack sometimes, but I, it opens up a lot more shot opportunities. So for the guys listening, 90% of my hunting and what I'm passionate about is hunting mountain boars. A lot of people discredit them and go, they're just pigs, you know, but those mountain boars, like those seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old boars that live in the mountains, they are super cagey, super elusive just to find. And then when you go to put an arrow in them, they physically have armour on them and they're built like tanks, you know, like you need a serious setup to get in there and penetrate it. So what I like for that is it opens me up to more shot opportunities. There might be a boar sitting there quartering onto me, sitting there with his scapula turned on like that, and you'll be at full draw waiting for that animal to turn broadside. I know with that setup of mine, I've done it so many times. I've shot hundreds of boars. I can take that shot. I can break that scapula, and I'm going to get that arrow in, double lung shot, and it's probably going to be poking out the other side. So I like that assurance that I can be a little more aggressive on my shots in that fact. So... It's not something I recommend to everyone if you haven't done it a bunch of times, but when you're at 12 metres and you know that arrow is going to hit precisely where you want it to, if your setup has the power to get in there, that's why I like that extra assurance. Or if you have that extra fighting pad, it's going to get in there and get into double lungs. You know, it's going to get there where you need it. So that's why I like that setup. You know, and I'm quite different to everyone else with setups. I know that, but it works for me. I shoot a stack of animals. And I'm just using it because I'm super confident in it. Amen to that. Uh, whatever gives you the most confidence. So tell me about this. Uh, so you got a Nexus, basically four millimeter arrow, and you got a titanium insert, half cert, out cert, whatever you want to call it. But does that allow you to run standard broadheads from the Oscut or are you doing like a deep six? Yeah. So the, our inserts on the Nexus shaft that will run your standard 832 thread or you run in the middle broadheads will fit with that. It's not a deep six or anything like that. Just your standard broadhead on that outset there. Um, we have two models of outsert. The standard is the 50 grain aluminum outsert, um, but I run the 75 grain for a little bit of extra weight and that extra durability there. So mm. I kind of notice the difference, a little bit more life in the arrow, but it's mainly for the weight that I, I use it. So I have two 25 grains up front of the arrow. The shaft is 11.1 GPI. And on the back of that, um, to get technical, I'm running a four fletch um three inch q2i fusion vein um the reason i run a four fletch is just that extra stabilization there a lot of our hunting in the, and again this goes back to mountain boars it, it's a grass called a tussock grass and it's a very thick grass and it might it might be two three four foot high at times and you're physically looking through the grass like that at an obscured animal a lot of the times you're visualizing where the vitals are through it because you can only see the head, a bit of the rump, the front leg, you go, okay, that's where I've got to thread that arrow. That arrow is going to come in contact with a bit of grass potentially with that extra flight on the back, that more surface area stabilising it with a fairly aggressive helical. If it does come into contact with something, I know it's going to straighten up or have the opportunity to straighten up as quickly as possible so that arrow is hitting dead perpendicular and transferring the utmost amount of energy and you're not going to be likely to cop a deflection on a rib or something like that. So that broadhead you're using, it's kind of beveled a little bit or something. So where are you seeing some serious corkscrew wound channel type thing with that three blade? No, that's the hurricane you're talking about there. So we come up oh, with the okay, hurricane. Um, no, that's fine. We come up with the hurricane a bunch of years ago. And basically 
that's an offset three blade design. So there's a lot of hype around your single bevel two blades because they have that rotation, that twist, which opens up the wound channel, more blood trails and basically kills your animals more efficiently. So I was like, okay, what can we do with a three blade here? In my opinion, a single bevel encourages rotation a lot and you definitely notice that rotation from a single bevel. But I was like, if it locks up on something hard, it doesn't physically have to twist. It, it's encouraging it to do that. I was like, how can we enforce that even more? couple of my buddies, Paul Woods, um, basically had the idea. It was like, why don't we offset the blades like that? And it's almost like a drill bit where it physically has to cork through there um, and it's going on that path. So the hurricane yeah. basically has three blades offset and opens up a bigger wound channel. So I'll use the hurricane. It's a great broadhead. I use it on thinner skin game, deer, fox. I use it on all my foxes, goats, on boars. I won't use, it's good on boars up to about the 220 pounds. You know, once you get those boars over 100 kilos, they're almost a different animal. The fighting pad goes from half an inch thick to two inches thick, built like Kevlar. Um, and it, in my opinion, it takes up too much energy with that extra twisting and the more obtuse uh, blade angle because it's slightly shorter and I'm not getting as much penetration. You know, it works 99% of times. That's why I prefer a smaller, I run a very small diameter head to a lot of guys. It's a one inch cut in a three blade. But to me, that is a cross between a two-blade with its penetration. That's what everyone goes to a two-blade for, penetration, obviously. But a three-blade for that extra cutting edge there, I'm kind of hovering in between both of the two there, So, which is an awesome mix. And then for me, using that 80-plus pound setup, that 570-grain arrow, it's got some serious power behind it. So it's going to get in there where it needs. And one other thing I found on board... Have you ever seen a fighting pattern boar, or do you know what I'm talking? About? I've only seen your stuff where you're where you're hunting those mountain boars. Yeah, is that what you're asking me? Because yeah, I've seen your foot over their shoulders, and particularly when they rut, um, it calcifies even more when the testosterone levels are increased. So basically, when they're rutting or um, fighting with the other boars, you'll see them. They'll they'll be foaming at the mouth, just going absolutely psychotic, and their fighting pattern calcifies right up, and it's like you tap it, it's like a rock. Um, so basically. The older they are and the better condition they are, the thicker that is and the harder it is within reason. So that fighting pad there, if you put a slip through it, it closes up very easily. So my shots I like on pigs, I will shoot a little bit higher than most people. I'll aim just a touch under halfway up. So I'm taking the tubes off the top of the heart, like the ventricles, and centering the lungs because I'd rather take the oxygen out of them as opposed to heart shoot them because they'll go a little further. Um, that's where the fighting pad is the thickest. So with a two blade, that fighting pad might close up like that. It's just a slip. And I'll send you some stuff after this podcast. But when a three blade goes in there, it's that triangular shape and it can't sort of close up in three ways. And it allows you to have that blood trail there. So where we hunt them, typically it's pretty thick scrub, you know, and they're not like a deer or deer or an elk or anything. They fall over. You can see a rack and things like that. Like they fall over under a log. You walk past them sometimes. They might only go 50 yards, but they're very hard to find in that thick scrub. And if you don't have a wound channel to give you a bit of a blood trail to follow those animals up, that's where a lot of guys will find they lose them. They'll do a really good shot on the animal. You know it's not going any more than 100 yards. When you're in the thick stuff, it's like, I don't know where to start looking. I'm looking for a black log amongst black logs and undergrowth and things like that. So I like the three blade that it gives me that better blood trail and the fighting pads can't close up easier. That's just that's just what I found, you know. Um, and for me... If I'm getting pass-throughs on 95% of those animals with a three-blade, I don't see the need to drop back to a two-blade, which is typically what boars are hunted with in Australia. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. You know. No, I, I feel that, and I wanted to cover that. Um, is there any special tactics that you, you employ with these? I mean, you've done it for so long and it's your favorite species to hunt. Like, what, how are you getting it done? How are you getting so close? How are you, like, take us through it, man. So time in the bush amongst everything. You know, you, I spend a lot of time out there. It's obviously social media is a highlight reel. So you see all these animals being put up, but there's a lot of hours in between. And my approach has changed a lot over the past four or five years. And I think I've become very successful with that. I've become very observant and I'll be very reserved with how I, apply myself so one particular spot there i have a whole mountain face that i can glass from a glassing point and with the boars for guys at home they're not they're a different animal to a normal pig once they hit about five years old they they pretty well go nocturnal the only thing that brings them out is hard times or hot days they will come to water or an in-season south and then again when they get to a certain age whether it's eight nine or ten I don't think they even come to riding mobs in, in the day. You know, if there's an in-season sow, they'll only visit it overnight. So they become super cagey and super wary. And this is where in the winter time, you get a bit of an upper hand on them. So winter and moon phases, my favourite hunting is super cold nights on no moon. No moon means they can't travel as far and they don't feel as safe to travel that distance to feed in the night. So their hand is forced to feed in the daytime. And then with those cold temps, when it gets in our below freezing temp, which is below 32 for you guys, um, that's when I start favouring it. So what they'll do is overnight, they'll go, I'm not comfortable. I don't like this. I'll be a bit of a sook. We want to be in our beds nice and comfortable of a night. They're the same thing. So they'll bed up of a night, won't, won't feed throughout the night, then their hand is forced to feed throughout the day. So you're by default going to get opportunities and see them in the daylight because they have to feed. Or on the inverse, there's a running mob and that ball will go visit that sow to service that sow. So what I do, I'm pretty lucky. My property is very mountainous and I have a lot of really good vantage points that I glass from. I will sit on a glassing point in winter from sun up to sundown and just look. I And basically I'll sort of start patterning. So you might see a mob, there'll be 10 pigs over here with a couple of sows, young ones over there. There's some young boars and you kind of get a feel. And throughout the day, it's just there. And there might be some what I'd call satellite balls that are, you know, two and a half, three and a half year old balls, which 90% of people would be going in straight after. Like they've got a fair bit of tusks there. They look pretty mature, but they're not that next level, which I'm after. They'll be, they'll put themselves out through the day and things like that. When it comes to late afternoon, the last 30 minutes of light, that's when the game changes. You'll sit there all of a sudden and you'll watch out of the thick cover. One or two big, big mature balls might just appear. And 90% of the time, they are on, they're on a mission going somewhere. And they'll almost be cantering along. So they'll be on the other side of this mountain face, cantering along on a mission, going to their favourite feeding spot. So 
then it becomes a rush. I've got about one of my glassing spots is about a mile across that I've got to cover down and up. And like, it's, it's a fair distance, it's a fair hill I've got to get across and you might have 20 minutes to get there. The pig is not where it was when you first seen it and he's on a move. So you've kind of got to an, um, anticipate where they're going and somewhat ambush them or pop up on them. A lot of the time I can't keep up with them because they're simply just covering ground too fast. But you put yourself ahead of it and a lot of the time you're there waiting, you know the path he's coming on and you can intercept him, right? So that's typically how the hunt will go. And there's a lot of um, dead ground in between. So you can use little hills and hollows and literally come up at 10, 15 yards on them. So it's very easy like that once you get in range. But a lot of the times those pigs will come out five minutes before dark and, oh, no, I can't get over there. But it's like in my mind, I'm like, tomorrow I'm pretty certain he's going to come out of there at that time and I'll be in a position a lot closer here he is now. I've only got to cover 200 yards. There he goes. Um, so that's one tactic I use. So if I go hunting, I typically like to go for two or three days so I can start seeing those patterns or if I'm finding those animals, I know where to look the next afternoon. The other thing I look at is sows and family mobs. They are your ball magnets, okay? So like I said, you'll be glassing there and there's a mob of sows feeding. They've been there two days in a row. You do that long enough one of those sows are going to cycle because sows don't have a particular time of year. They come in season. They can go in whenever. And I believe the gestation period with a pig is three months, three weeks, three days, something like that. Don't quote me, but they can go very frequently. So sows can come in summer, winter, whenever, but typically when they come on is after rain events or cold weather. So that will spur running activity. So if we have a big cold snap come on, I'll go, okay, sows are going to come on heat soon. It's going to go crazy. So I'll look there and if over two or three days, I know there's a mob of sows there. I won't disturb them. I'll leave them because to me, that's like baiting in a boar. Eventually a boar is going to come visit that mob, whether they come into season or sniff around. So sows to me are your biggest asset to draw those big boars out, out of their cover in the middle of the day. And what's a dead giveaway sometimes is those mobs will be there and you'll have those young satellite boars come in and they'll be, you know, 140 to 180 pound boars generally like, younger two to three-year-old boars they have all the look they have a little bit of task and they'll be around and their nuts actually get swollen they look like beach balls like it's ridiculous so you go that boar is and they'll be fighting and carrying on and squealing and you'd be like okay and what a lot of people do is like oh there's a rutting mob awesome let's go in and shoot one of those but if you want to shoot that really big boar watch that rutting mob and particularly i'm speaking in winter time at the moment throughout the day at some stage i can guarantee within a 400 yard radius generally there'll be a big fella camped up downwind just smelling what's going on and every now and again he'll come in and check on those sows beat off um beat up those younger boars there scare them away and he'll come in and you go oh there's a proper one there so like i'll sit there and i'll watch a riding mob and it's like what's this going to draw in or what has it drawn in overnight you know if i don't see that something that day typically the next day i know overnight that boar's definitely going to a sow and heat will drag boars in from miles away, you know. I've seen 20 mature boars on one sow, you know, and it's just dragged them in from miles. So I see that rutting mob the day prior. Overnight, I'm like, it's going to drag boars in. I'll be there in the dark looking on that side of the mountain and often you'll hear them squealing and fighting. But on the absolute first rays of light in that grey light, I'll be glassing that mob through my binos and my spotter. And a lot of the time you'll see a mature boar there and you've just got to start going over because as soon as that sun, as soon as light starts coming on the mountain, they'll start making a beeline away typically. And a lot of the time I'll shoot those boars leaving mobs on that first light. Um, so it's a lot of observing for me. You know, I've taken that more 
um, reserved approach. And I just really get an understanding of what's happening. And with that mountain face, it's one spot in particular, I see everything. You know, I'm not putting my scent on the mountain. I'm not disturbing the other animals. And I'm almost using the other animals, keeping them calm to allow them to bring the boars out to me. But you have to invest a lot of time because these boars, they don't, they don't like to associate with mobs. They don't like other pigs because they put themselves in silly spots, you know, where we can see them. They feed in the day and the big boars are just lonesome animals. They don't like to be around others at all. You know, like you'll see a boar that's feeding if a goat or a deer walks near it, it'll chase it away. It doesn't want to be around other animals. They perceive danger, you know. So I sit back, I observe, and I use the other animals to my advantage. Does that make a bit of sense to you, what I'm saying? There's so much crossover for other species. What you're saying as far as just being patient, relying on your glass, understanding the terrain features, and, you know, where, you know, you can kind of take advantage of the species, understand their strengths, their weaknesses, um, and incorporate more patience, uh, know when to strike. I mean, it's just like... It's surgical what you're doing, and that's what bow hunting can really be for any species if you put the time in. Freaking love it, man. I'm all juiced up about it. I think it's pretty cool. Um, I got to ask you, <clears throat> on your northern trip, we got to talk about overlanding, man. Like, your rig was probably so important. Like, the the heartbeat of that adventure. Tell us about your setup. Yeah, so I have a what's called a landing cruiser, which is probably our most common four-wheel drive we have or what I call like the pinnacle of four-wheel driving in Australia um, set up with canopy on the back from my friends at Mitz Alloy. So basically what I have is the four-wheel drive vehicle. It's a dual cab with a canopy on the back and a rooftop tent or camper on the roof. Um, this thing allows you to pretty much go as remote as you want and be self-sufficient. It has solar on the roof. We have our inbuilt water. We have all our cooking supplies with that. We have our fridge. We have our bed on the roof. You can pretty much pick up camp go an hour and a half down the road, pull up for the night, um, set up camp there and go again. And we would have a bit of a home base at the front of the property. You know, that was like a two-hour drive in. Like you'd travel into another town just to get to the front of the property. So we'd go in every couple of days to get get basic supplies, a bit more food, water, things like that. But essentially we lived out of my vehicle for a month straight. Um, you know, you've got your fridge there, you've got your gas cooker, everything is attached to that vehicle, all your gear inside, um, solar on the roof that we're charging the e-bikes we're charging all our camera gear phones all that sort of stuff fully self-sufficient off the vehicle there mm. I, that's pretty gangster now um what is the deal with like so you're hunting up in the northern territory like is this a meat mission for you guys or are you guys just killing feral animals because that's what you need to do like are you bringing home any of the meat how are you keeping that what's your meat care protocol yeah so pretty much in the northern territory the guys with hunting on a lot of those places is you are there to eradicate the pigs Buffalo, obviously different. There's trophy fees and things like that associated with that place there. So that's an income to the property owner. Um, but with the pigs, to be honest, a lot of the pigs up there, um, I wouldn't touch because we're shooting, again, those old boars. And a lot of the times you're shooting them off, they're eating rotting carcasses, you know. So yeah. pigs are omnivorous, you know. And a lot of the pigs we would actually shoot were off dead donkey carcasses. Um, horses or cattle would die out there and within 48 hours pigs would have eaten that rotten carcass. So if you find carcasses, the pigs would be on that. So the meat off those and keeping it because of the physical temperature you're in, if you're wanting to do it, you're going to have to target those smaller animals, obviously, um, to do it. And you're going to have to be very swift because of the temperatures you're in there. So the pigs on that trip didn't touch at all. Buffalo, we took as much meat as we could off that animal mm -hmm. there ate that a few times. Um, but largely it's just feral pest control, you know, it's, it's very different to what you guys have over in the States. 
Um, like I know myself, like I would call myself a trophy hunter. Like I'm hunting boars more so. I'm not targeting the boars for me. Um, I shoot a couple deer a year. I'll take all the meat off those deer, you know, like that's, I love eating venison. I'll take those deer back. But with the boars, that's not me going out to harvest the meat on them. That's more of, it's helping a landowner out. It's culling. Yeah. I hate, I hate calling them a feral, feral animal or a pest because it's like what defines a pest, you know, like, yes, they can carry disease and things like that. And yes, they do eat the grass that the cows eat and sort of compete with resources within reason on farms. But so do kangaroos, so do deer. It's like, at what point, how are we classifying that, that a pig's a pest, but a deer's not when they're both competing for those same resources on a commercial farm? Like, I, I find it a bit muddled there. And I try and, for me, I'll have the same level of respect and admiration and ethics for whether it's a rabbit, a pig, a deer, a buffalo, an elk. I'll treat, I, I see them all the same. Um, they're all a resource to me, which needs to be managed, you know? Um, so it's a bit of a funny one there, but like all the deer I shoot and things like that would take all the meat back. I'm not shooting nowhere near as many deer as I am boars, you know? Um, and then when you come back into the mountains where we are here, um, have you heard of brucellosis? Yeah. Yeah. So all of our, pretty well, there's been a big um, surge in the brucellosis cases in where I am at the moment, which is the Hunter Valley. I got it back in 2017 and thought I was going to die. Um, and I've had a few flare-ups, spent time in hospital with it. Like, it really messed me up. There's a lot of that in the pigs at the moment. We're getting a lot of alerts from the DPI and local agencies saying, hey, like, do not handle these pigs if you are. Extreme care, like, gloves on, because I believe it gets in through it's through the bloodstream. So if you have any nicks or cuts, you touch that blood or might be saliva, I could be wrong, gets in you like that. That's how you'll contract it. So there's a lot of that where I'm hunting in the area. So it's kind of not advised to be touching them. Um, and if you are like, if you are wanting to hunt pigs for me, shooting the smaller ones and the younger ones, which I don't do, I know I'm going to cop flack for saying that, um, no, smaller, I don't think so. smaller ones and younger ones, far better reading than a nine year old boar that lives off carrion, which is rotting me, you know? So, yeah. um, pigs off, I've, like I've eaten a few young pigs off shot off there when we've had people up there, like, can we go shoot a pig? Yeah, we'll go shoot a young one. We'll cook it. It's awesome meat. But for me at the moment, this property in the mountains that I hunt is more of a commercial side as well. The landowner is making money out of the hunting as well. So yeah, there's incentive for him to allow those, those animals to remain to a certain number because we just come out of a drought four years ago and the numbers of all the animals got wiped out to almost zero. So we're still building back. They're not in what I'd call plague proportions or anything like that, but they're bouncing back from a drought. Yes, those numbers do get to a point where they need to be managed and culled and we sort of work in with the landowners like, hey, there's too many pigs, we need to start eradicating, blah, blah, blah. It's nowhere near that point at the moment. But I'm running guided hunts out of there. He's getting money in his pocket to have those animals on his land. He's accepting of that and he's commercially benefiting from that. So I see that as a win-win. What is the name of your bow shop and what town is it in? So we just started, it's called Bow Hunting Only. Um all in the name, obviously. So for the guys listening, um, I have Ozcut Broadheads, Nexus Bowhunting and Atlas Wild. So my businesses um, in the outdoor sphere, I also have another business in the supplement industry, which is mainstream primabolics nutrition. However, my main passion is within that outdoor sphere. So we deal with a lot of people on Instagram. I had the podcast with Green Tree that we're going and we're interacting with everyone on the bow hunting sphere very deep. You know, like we sold arrows through Nexus. 
but I would speak to customers and advise them on what boots they should be wearing or bow setups, bow tuning. Um, and this went on for a lot of years. And I personally wasn't happy with the level of expertise in Australia in the hunting um, retail market there. There's no dedicated bow hunting store in this country. Um, we have a couple of archery stores, not many. It's a very small demographic. And myself and Jack were speaking. It's like, well, we're interacting with all these people. We're helping them out. Like, And we had the bow press there and we'd help a few guys and message, hey, my bow's out of tune. Can, can I come in and you guys have a look at it? Be like, oh, yeah, sure. No worries. Well, like, why don't we put this, why aren't we opening our own store when we're interacting and engaging with these guys anyway? We're doing all this groundwork for people and then sending them away and come up with the idea. We're moving into a new warehouse for our brands anyway. We knocked the wall out. We put a shop front in and it's grown absolutely out of control and the amount of support that we've had from people is crazy. So bow hunting only is located in Thornton, which is just outside of Newcastle, two hours from Sydney. Um, it's kind of within two hours of our, the mecca of mountain hunting within New South Wales. So the area we're in is kind of where all the mountain hunting goes on for those fallow and reds. Typically, it's it's kind of where everyone's centrally, centrally located. But for bow hunting only, um, I'm super excited for the future. We, we opened last May after the rut and things are going awesome. You know, we've got people driving five, six hours to come in and see us to get their gear worked on. Um, which to me, that means a lot. That's massive. You know, they're putting their trust in us, driving so far because they believe in what we're doing and trust us. Like, it's awesome, man. So, yeah, the culture at bow hunting only, um, two hours north of, uh, north of Sydney. Like, what's the vibe when you walk in the door? Like, what's kind of like every shop's got its own. Like, I've been to a lot of bow shops in my my lifetime, and I think every bow shop's got its own little culture. Can you put a pulse on that, like a finger on a pulse, and tell us about your guys' culture? Yeah, I just say everyone is super passionate and super genuine. You know, like we, I'm speaking of myself here, and I know I'm probably going to be biased. Like, I am so committed to helping others. I'll, I want people to succeed and I want to share in that with them. I want everyone to sort of learn. Um, it, it, it's definitely a family vibe with us. You know, like we're a small store within reason. I'd like to try and know everyone by name that comes in. I like to know about, that, about their trips they're doing and kind of get involved in that side of things and see that progression with them. So, um i think it's very like community community orientated um one thing i will say is we don't have i don't just have products for the sake of having products what we like to have in store is gear that we use and we can knowingly recommend and say i have used this this is the pros this is the cons um and i'll be very realistic with people but i think we have a good spread you know um like i said to you i like i do not tinker with my bow like it is set and it just stays there you know whereas jack Jack's had 36 bows in the past five months, you know, like he will try <laughs> absolutely everything, um, which is good. So I think those two polarizing views there and we meet in the middle with that, we combine both of that. I think we can give some good knowledge and advice out with that, you know? So um, I think we've got a pretty broad spectrum of knowledge and information there. You know, Jack's more on the Matthews side of things, shoots that side of stuff. Um, I, I'm shooting a Hoyt. I'm all about heavy arrow being closer Jack sort of running a hinge release, sliding side. It's just we're sort of two polar opposites and we can offer that advice in the middle to people and allow them to sort of choose their own routes. Like we're offering the knowledge on both sides. I think it's good as opposed to going, no, you have to use this. I love that. I absolutely love that. That is, you guys are going to crush. That's awesome. Is there, um, I want to talk about fitness. That's where I want to end. But before in Australia, 
Like, what is your guys's opposition when it comes to maintaining your heritage, maintaining your hunting rights, maintaining your bow hunting rights? Is there any like ever growing opposition working up against you guys? So what I'll say is in America, New Zealand, especially the hunting culture, the outdoors, fishing, it's championed and celebrated for you guys, right? It's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. Over here, particularly hunting, it is frowned upon. It's something that we're working on and I believe social media has been bad and good for it. It's bad in fact that, you know, those negative clips that you all see that the animal rights groups get a hold of and they'll they'll portray over the internet and try and use to pass legislation and things like that. Yes, there's that side of thing, but I believe it's given us a voice and an ability to present our passion, the ethics behind it and the data. You know, guys like um, Robbie from Blood Origins, you're probably familiar with him. Guys like Robbie are putting so much positive and truthful data-driven content out there that can't be argued, you know, the, the dollars that's putting into the economy, the facts of animal management and all that sort of stuff. I think it's giving us a voice to portray that to the public and see them in a medium that they can see that and go, oh, I didn't know that before. All I was seeing was the negative stuff that was passed out there. So Australia, a lot of people won't be proud that they hunt. You know, I know a lot of guys, particularly professionally um, within the business sphere, that are all avid hunters, you will not see one hunting post on their page because they're worried they're going to lose a client, they're going to lose a sponsorship, whatever it might be. It will affect them negatively in their professional life. And even personally, we have staff within the business, fanatic about hunting, want to post about it, but are scared about the backlash from their friends and family because of that negative stigma, you know. I think it's something we're trending in the right direction. Like, guys, Joe Rogan is such a champion of the sport with the way he promotes it to his broader audience. I think he's bringing attention to that side of things, you know, like collecting your own meat, um, experience that wilder side of life. And I think people are getting curious about that and being a little more open because they're seeing the benefits of it. You know, like there's nothing better, man, than harvesting your own meat and feeding and providing for your family, whether it's going out and harvesting a deer or catching a fish. That the feeling with that, you can't describe it until you do it, you know. And I think a lot of people are getting curious to go down that road, which is making them a little more, I think, just aware that it's out there and a little bit more accepting. So I think it's slowly trending in the right direction, but it's definitely got a long way to go in Australia. Our government is probably our worst enemy for that. They don't want to be seen, this is my opinion, I don't think they want to be seen to be supporting hunting because they're going to lose votes for that. So a lot of incentives and initiatives sort of, it just doesn't happen, you know. Um, yes, we do have a little bit of public land hunting in New South Wales. Um, Vic- Victoria actually has very good public land hunting opportunities. It, it's, it's really good um, for your Samba deer hunting, which is down south of me. The state I'm in, it does have public land, but typically the land's not that great and there's really not many animals on there, you know. And then you go to the whole thing of our government recognises deer as a pest. We have aerial culling programs for deer. It's like they'll go into a national park or, or land or private property. I can totally understand landowners can do as they please, but, and go and shoot thousands upon thousands of deer to leave them rot. And it is the biggest waste of a resource. It just, it makes me so sad. You know, like we have hunters who cannot get access to land wanting to actively pay money and invest in the economy to go and hunt these animals. We'll send a chopper up and go shoot 5,000. No meat taken, no one benefits, the taxpayer pays for it, and that cycle repeats. You know, that's what we need to break out of. It's a resource. People are going to want to pay to do that. Let's turn it into a resource, not just dead money and dead animals that benefits no one realistically. 
Oh man, that's hard to hear. To be honest with you, happens in happens here too. Uh, happens in my state, especially with um, yeah, you know, it's just tough. I, I see it two ways. It, how our game animals are perceived um, is that pest status, and it's not regulated like you guys. We don't have tag systems, you know. It gives me a lot of hunting opportunity, right? So for the guys that want to do a lot of hunting, there's no seasons. Like I could go out and shoot 50 fallow bucks if I wanted to this year. There is nothing stopping me doing that, you know? So it's kind of self-regulated. Um, I know I manage my block very well, um, particularly the fallow deer herd. Like I'm, I will not harvest young deer. I'll only hunt big deer. I'll shoot one meat animal off of the year whilst the numbers are bolstering back up, you know? Um, this season, I think there's going to be about three or four bucks that will be giants there this year. I'd be happy to shoot two there this season, you know. I'll, I'll manage that myself. What it does, though, is it gives us access, like, in a good season, I might shoot 60, 70, 80 animals. Boars, goats, deer, foxes, you know. What you learn from harvesting that many animals, I cannot put into words on how oh, much yeah. value you get, you know. Um, like, <clears throat> I, I would say a good season for me on boars, goats and everything, I'd probably average 40 to 50. It would be my average yep. year, you know. Um, yep. And with that, I know I've been able to apply a lot of those learnings to my setup. Like I really know what works. I have the utmost confidence in my setup from that. So that's only because of the sheer amount of opportunity that we physically have. You know, like I, I sort of sympathize with you guys. You you get this nine-month period where you're building up and leading up to it. You might want to try a new setup, something like that. You might harvest one, two, three what would you say the average amount of animals the average U.S. hunter would harvest a year? I'd say one and a half. I have no idea, honestly. I, I always, I'm like in the out west world of U.S. So like, like the, some of the guys that live in the Midwest and even the East Coast, like, it seems like they can get a ton of deer tags, and so they can shoot a lot of deer. Um, and then there's guys like me that's like, you know, I. I probably shoot anywhere between five and 10 big game animals a year. And that's quite a bit of hunting, honestly, but there's no doubt a pretty long off season in there. Whereas you have so many reps in the red zone is what I call it. That ice just starts to form in your veins. You have a setup. you just know what to do. Like, yeah, you have a huge advantage, man. And it's going to transfer. Like I, I look at you and what you do. Like I see you out training, putting reps down range, practicing and like I will practice a little bit I, I'm notorious man I hate taking long shots like to the fact that I I won't shoot a deer past 30 minutes like I will not I'll just not do it I I am just a good closer. shot yeah. um it's funny like I, I say to guys like that's my thing I say just get close like I don't know people laugh at it and stuff like that but for me red stag in Argentina 19 meters my red stag the year before six meters my fellow buck was at 14 like I don't like taking long shots and putting that risk there but what I was sort of getting at is um, I see you guys, you're far better archers than us. Like when I see you guys shooting like 80, 90, 100 yards, my God, I don't think I could do that. My bow slide into 50 and like that's like, oh, that's a long way for me. Um, but what, I, what I'm sort of getting at is like for me, what I like is say I'm going to Argentina on a red stag hunt, you know, you've got a lot of emphasis and time and energy and money invested in this hunt. It's like you're going to put time and effort and practice for that hunt, right? For me, I'm like, I'm like, I need to go hunting to practice to go hunting. So I'll That's make sure awesome, I'll do dude. trips, you know, I'll go cull some small pigs and, and shoot pigs off the crops and things like that just to get those reps in on those actual hunting scenarios, which 
you can't get shooting at a target. Like your target never moves on you. It doesn't jump the string. It doesn't, you know, like all those things, your heart rate's not as elevated. You're, you're not a potato brain when your adrenaline's jacked up through the roof and you've got a big six, six in front of you or whatever it might be. Um, I will try and physically just go hunting to practice for a big hunting trip. As weird as that sounds coming up. So it makes so much sense, bro. And you, I mean, you're onto something. So I, I spring hunt mainly, um, black bears, um, here in the States been doing that for decade plus and i put a lot into it because it's kind of like that's where i go chip the rust off i'm like i don't want to show up to our hunting season the fall which usually starts august september and not have put a couple animals on the ground tested my setup got reps like so yeah i totally get like what you're saying um i'm just jealous that's all you you can fit in in australia yeah dude for sure no I, i i i gotta go I got to make it happen, man. Um, I have so many people that reach out and ask me to ship stuff to Australia, uh, just like elk shaped shirts and stuff. I don't ship internationally yet. And I'm just like, gosh, dang, there's a lot of cool YouTube supporters, supporters from Australia. like, no Australia, man. Like there's a bow, a bow hunting community that is undeniable for sure. For sure, man. Yeah. And you know, like I invite a lot of my, like I've got a lot of good friends in the States that I've developed relationships from over the years on social media and things like that. I've extended invites to so many people. And I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of opportunities we can have here. And like for you, man, like extending this invite right now, if you want to come over and come hunting with me for a week, two weeks, whatever, I'll make that happen. And you'll have a bunch of opportunities and that's hunting in your off season. 100%. You know, like whether you're coming over here, March, April, May, June, you're not doing any hunting at home like that. So it's a way sort of giving you, I know it's a big cost right now after COVID, obviously it's become a lot more expensive to do, but the accessibility, um, if you know someone and you have friends over here, a lot of the time you can just come over and go hunting with them on private land. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah, largely... No. It's probably what you got to do, honestly, like you were saying in certain areas. Um, what a cool culture. So, dude, you're quite the entrepreneur. You have several businesses. You got your hands in a lot of things. Um, one thing we didn't talk about, and I kind of wanted to make sure this was the last box I checked, was your fitness, man. Like, you're a fit dude. You have a supplement company. You're like... Are you a gym bro or do you get your fitness by hunting or like, what's your style? What's your flavor? I'm a funny one, man. I'd say I'm like a gym bro crossed with a hardcore hunter, you know, Um, cardio wise. So typically throughout the year, I'd say for nine months of the year, I'd hunt two or three days a week, every week in the mountains. So, you know, I'm doing big days up there. The cardio typically for me is through the roof. Um, If I'm not getting the hunting in, like at the moment, we just, it's just, it's January it's late January. We've just come back after Christmas period. Everything's ramping back up. Staff have been off for a couple of weeks. I will typically start doing um, some form of cardio. Don't run that much, but I love the stair machine. I'll get on a stair machine and I'll walk my ass off, you know, whether you do 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes with a weighted pack on. I love doing a lot of stairs. But apart from that, um, I'll weight train six, seven days a week. Um, I'm a little bit um, chaotic in how much I train. Like I'd probably overtrain my body too much but also find that i would rather have a strong brain than strong body within reason you know because everyone i believe it's all it's mental to begin with and to be able to push through that so a lot of that's just to keep myself pushing to do better but i'll do your standard you know your gym bro weight training um that sort of split that i do there 
But with that as well, it's very heavy, heavily cardio based as well with the amount of hunting I'm doing. Like I'd, nine months of the year, I'd say I'm very fit. Like I'm on that top tier. Like I can push myself really hard. And on those mountain hunts, I've got a lot of fitness behind me, which benefits me a lot. You know, I find if I, if I don't hunt for three weeks, I'm starting again with my fitness. You know, like it's something, particularly for the mountains I hunt, it's a very aggressive hunting boars very aggressive running running gun style hunt you have to be fit like if you can't get there in x amount of time and you're a couple of minutes late you've missed that opportunity whereas if i was fitter and better i could have put myself on that bench i needed to be as that animal was walking past intercepted it and capitalized on that opportunity so fitness for me is a big one um but i i find that just by simply being there on the mountain and doing it is the best thing like the best fitness for being on the mountain and going hunting is going hunting you know if I can't do that, I'll somewhat try and emulate that. Um, but I don't have anything crazy. Like I know I eat very healthy. Um, I, I don't count my macros or anything like that, but I, I'm very cognizant of what I am eating. I sort of know um, whether I'm in a deficit or surplus and what I'm doing and sort of eat intuitively. But I definitely eat healthy and very health conscious in that regards because in the mountains, you're not getting driven around. It's your two feet taking you to where you need to be, man. And you're the vessel for success. Like if you're not up to scratch, you're just giving yourself a disadvantage to begin with. So fitness to me, very, very important. Yeah, it sounds like it. And man, you look great. You just turned 30. You're, you got businesses. You take care of business in the mountains with your bow. I knew I wanted to do this podcast and it took a little, little work on both of us to get us schedules lined up, dude. So thanks for making the time, especially on your birthday. I really appreciate that, bro. No, thanks for having me on, man. It was an awesome chat. I'd like to put forward to you though. Let's do part two of this in the mountains when you come over for a hunt. Extending that invitation right now, man. Yeah, man. Like, um, I don't mess around. So I'm going to like talk to my wife because I think I'm going to figure it out. 2024 or something where I can come over. Now, I guess on the flip side of that, I don't want to owe you nothing. So have you been to the States or do I need to make sure that you're coming over here as well and chasing bugles with me? Yeah, man. So I've been, I've probably been to the States about 10 or 12 times, whether it's the Western Expo, shop shows, ATA, all that sort of stuff. I've hunted twice. Um, so some of the guys listening are familiar with like the tag raffle at the Western Hunting Expo. You familiar? Yeah. With? So oh, yeah. I, first year at the Western, I drew a limited entry uh, elk hunt in Utah. Where? Uh, so that was late season. I think it was from like the 11th to 18th of December. That was one of the hardest hunts I've done in my life. Um, okay. I, I went over there. I um, skunked out on that one. I, I got to full draw basically the first, I think it was a seven or eight day hunt that we had there in the snow with me and Liam Woods. Um, we went over first five days. I couldn't find a shootable to save myself. Guys, I think they were a little bit shitty at me. They were like, how'd you get this tag? How'd you get this tag? You know? And um, no one was really forthcoming with spots. And anyway, I was, I, I was looking on, on X and I was like, where is the deepest, darkest hole I can go into? Where, where does someone not want to go? We went in there and just found bulls on bulls, like really good 300 plus class bulls. And I was like, all right, we had two days. Um, we got in on two really good bulls with that, but just couldn't make it happen. If I had more time or was in that area to start with, I think the result would have been a little bit different. Um, but that was back then. That was a really cool hunt. And then I've hunt, hunted Montana once before. So definitely super keen to get back. Um, I'm just doing all my apps at the moment. Um, so this year my plan is Montana and Colorado. They'll come. You, so you're coming. You're coming this fall. It's happening. Yeah, man. I mean, COVID's kept me away for two years or three years realistically. So 
I'm super hungry to get back. One thing I actually really want to do is I want to hunt a black bear. Um, and I didn't oh. realize in some states that you get just get an over-the-counter tag for a bear up until a couple of months back. And I was like, why didn't I do this years ago? So that's like really high on my list. I'm very intrigued by those bear hunts. Like that's something I definitely want to do as well. Yeah, dude, if you're doing research on bears, like um, like obviously Idaho is where I go quite a bit and it's got a good spring season. It's over-the-counter. There's draw areas as well. Montana's another great over-the-counter state, big country, lots of good bear densities. The state I live in, which is Washington, you're going to want to hunt. They have a pretty early summer. So for us, like summer, you know, August, pretty hot, but they, a lot of places open up for bears and those are huckleberry bears. So you're talking like good table fair bears. Um, I like spring bears. Well, as far as table fair fall bears, I try not to shoot bears in the falls cause they're like eating whatever they can get their hands on. And so, but Washington state's got a really good, like early summer season, which in beautiful country, my state, even though I, I hate the politics here, it's very liberal. Uh, my state is it, just gorgeous here. Uh, Wyoming's got um, some over-the-counter bear hunting opportunities as well. Um, I mean, those are some really – and then obviously, like, if you're willing to put in for Alaska draws, I would really look at, like, getting, um, like, a Prince of Wales-type bear tag, make it an expedition, get get charted, get dropped off, whatever. The, the amount of bear density – and I just killed the Alaska spring bear, black bear, last year – I, I've never seen so many black bears in a hunt. And when I'm bear hunting with a bow, I want to see a lot of bears. Like that's what I signed up for. So those are all really good options. Alaska probably being the best of all those that I mentioned, as far as getting a spring tag and they have some over the counter stuff as well. Um, you gotta do it, man, especially spot and stock. I love, I don't mind hunting them over bait. In fact, I'm going to Canada to hunt bears over bait this year, which I've done before, but I bet I've killed more bear spot and stock. And I just like chasing them in the mountains, man. Um, there's, there's nothing else. It's epic. Do you, do you find that a lot of guys won't hunt bears? Like, is it just really low? And a lot of guys this, cause I don't see that many people doing it. And to me, it's like, if you have that opportunity, it's like, why, why am I not seeing more people doing this? That's why I didn't think it was so accessible. You know, I'm thinking you've got to draw those tags. It's, it's the next elk hunting thing. So like elk hunting has been really grown popular in the last five to 10 years through a bunch of reasons from social media, love it or hate it, good or bad, um, highlight reels there. Um, you know, just whatever the limited resource, like elk hunting is pretty darn popular. Now I'm seeing more and more guys starting to bear hunt. Uh, I've been bear hunting religiously for the last 15 years, like every spring getting out, spending 30 to 40 days in the field. Um, I'm seeing more and more. I think it's going to continue to grow. Probably doesn't help us talking about it on a podcast, but I don't mind because bears are, they need to be managed. They, a lot of states don't allow you to bait or hunt with dogs. Um, and so, and bears live a lot longer than ungulates and they're very prolific at breeding. Not as prolific as your freaking mobs going into heat every three months, three weeks, three days, or whatever, if the cold snap, nothing like that. But bears live a long time, and they're so good at making a living wherever they're living. They just – so, yeah, they need to be managed, man. And um, I think California. What's a mature What's ball then? So a mature ball, what, what age is that we're talking about? How long are they living? Okay, so I'm not a bear expert, but I'm gonna sell like I'm just gonna kind of go over a few stats. The oldest bear I've ever killed was like 28 years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was a she. I thought it was a boar, um, and I got fooled. She was pretty big. 
Uh, but she was also like, like literally the skull on her was like, there was no teeth. There was like maybe a couple little teeth sticking out. Like she wasn't going to make it just. Yeah. Um, I would say like some of my better bears, like the best size bears are in that eight to 10 year old range. Like kind of like what you're killing with your mountain boars. Um, certainly don't want to, I tried, I, I certainly try to shoot anything, um, you know, small or young, but, um, yeah, I don't know. You, you can get your bear aged. You're going to like in, in Idaho, you're going to pull a molar in Washington. You're going to pull a molar, a milk tooth as they call it. And they're going to, they're, you can look up your data and see exactly what they estimate, how old it is. And so that's kind of cool. Um, but they all need to be managed. For sure, man. And how you guys do it, it, it's good because it is managed. It's based on the data and the science that, you know, like if there is a surplus of those animals, you guys are going to issue more tags. If it's becoming, there's an issue with populations dwindling and things like that, like those tags are going to be pulled right back and that, that resource is managed because you have the money going into it. Uh, you have vested interest from a lot of parties there. So like you are, say the hunting is increasing in popularity. I'm sure if down the track it gets to a point that, you guys are like, hey, these bears are actually we're putting too much strain on them hunting. That's going to come back, and you guys are managing it. So, like, it's great how you guys do it, and I'm somewhat envious that we don't have a system like that in place with Australia because those animals are always going to be there because you guys are monitoring the numbers and you genuinely care about those herds and populations. You know, whether there's too many bears affecting the elk herds or not enough bears in general, the tag allotment's going to be adjusted according to those animal numbers and the data there. So, like you guys have the finger on the pulse. I'd largely say from what my perception of it all is, how it all works. Yeah. My bucket list hunt is a brown bear, a coastal brown bear in Alaska, not an interior grizz. That would be like way up there on my list. But like, I'm not a guy that's like dreaming about going to Alaska and hunting like the big Yukon, Alaska moose and getting like a 70 inch moose or a 60 inch moose because those things, like most of those hunts take place archery in September. I ain't giving up elk hunting for nothing. But my bucket list is to definitely archery kill, you know, a mature Alaska coastal brown bear. Just got to do that before I peace out. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's that's right up there with me. I'd probably say that's my bucket list hunt is one of those coastal grizz. Um, another hunt that I will get done within the next two years, I was supposed to do pre-COVID. This is pretty left of field, is Uzbekistan mountain boars. So, oh, those, so wow. um, those boars in Uzbekistan um, get upwards of 250, allegedly 300 kilo boars, um, just absolutely out of control, live in the mountains above Ibex, you know, like they're living at crazy, like 10,000 feet altitudes in crazy, crazy mountains and they're relatively untouched, you know, the, the country is of a Muslim um, denomination, so they can't touch the pigs. They don't touch the pigs. It's a resource they don't want. And you just have this this large portion of these boars living in the mountain ranges there. So um, I'm speaking with a guy on Instagram. His name is Ridgewalker Hunts. He's, an, he's actually an Australian outfitter. I believe he works out of Italy, um, and he's got some hunts happening, um, and I'm looking at getting that happening. But to me, like a, a boar of that size in that epic mountain country, it's like that just ticks all of the boxes for me. Like these giant big boars living in this absolutely insane terrain is something I'm, I'm really excited to get over and hunt. And a lot of people don't even, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Man? Exactly. Dude, uh, let's do a Joe Rogan thing a little bit here. I love Joe Rogan. You brought him up. Like, I didn't want to talk about this, but like, like I'm not going to be able to come to your country if I got to be poked with a needle that has some stuff in it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm one of those guys, like 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it's all G now. So, yeah, yeah, throw the politics aside there. Um, it did get a little out of, out of hand. Um, I thought it was a little over the top with what they were enforcing on us. Um, me being self-employed, I had a little bit more autonomy over, over what I had to do. But in a lot of sectors, in the I'll speak in the state, I was in New South Wales, um, during the periods of the lockdowns and things like that, if you weren't vaccinated, you weren't allowed to go to work, you know. I believe legally, um, and I think it's come out now that it was found it was either on unconstitutional or something like that that's going on, the government's revoking fines they issued and things like that because it was unconstitutional, you know, all that's being reverted. But at the time, there was a thing there that if you weren't vaccinated or had your two shots there, you weren't allowed to go to work. It was up to the company or the employer to enforce it, you know, all of those big corporate ones that just operate under the government, that was just a blanket thing. Me with my workforce, I was like, I don't care what you do, guys. The police aren't going to come around here. You do what you want. Come to work, you know. Um, we were very lucky in the fact that we run the supplement business, so we were considered an essential business because we sold food. Um, our facility had our bow hunting and everything all under the one roof as the supplements and the protein that allowed us to continue trading. So I'll be honest with you, man, I thought I was going bankrupt twice in COVID. All of our accounts <laughs> were shut down. No one could do business. We just invested a heap of money, bought all this stock, um, we actually bought a store and everything that never traded, spent all this money um, and they shut the country down. And I was like, my business partner, Will, um, we had a lot of hard conversations and we were like, if it, <laughs> it was going, I was like, yeah, we're in shit here. Um, but basically we made the decision and I was like, I'm so stubborn, man. I was like, no, nah, I refuse. Like we can get through this. We've done the numbers. I was like, yeah, we do this, this and this. We can get through this, you know. But it made us sort of revamp everything. We built back better. We... We're on the up and up. We're growing exponentially now and it's been great for us. But during that time, the country just went stupid. You know, like they locked us down. It was funny. We had one lockdown. We weren't allowed within five kilometres of our home. You couldn't go to other government areas. It was insane, you know. You had to shop within here. Um, and I remember they they done a lockdown. We, we, it might have lasted a month and I was just going crazy. I was still travelling to work. You know, you get pulled over by the police. Your number plate's not registered in this area. Where are you going? I'm like, oh. I run a supplement company. I'm allowed to work. Like who the hell has the right to tell you you can work and provide, you know, um, that happened. I ran your plates and you don't live within a certain radius. I ran your plate like wild. Hey, that's that dude. I mean, I'm, that's, we had a lockdown. I went hunting um, and I was on my way back. And I remember my mom messaged me. She said, I think there's another lockdown happening as of today. And I was driving back from hunting and I rang Jack and I was like, I think there's another lockdown going to happen. It was like, there is no way I'm being stuck at home. I said, I'm coming to get you. We're going to go hunting. And I remember I got back and they're like, oh, lockdown from midnight tonight. Supposed to be for two weeks. It ended up going for six. <laughs> I oh picked my him up. gosh. We drove, we drove out and we went hunting for two and a half weeks because there was no way I was going to sit at home and be locked in my house and a prisoner like that. So yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. I'm um, like, oh, I'm obviously someone that values freedom and autonomy of choice and everything like that. So like it did not sit well with me in any capacity. It got very silly over here. That's passed. And I think a lot of people have realized that they had to pull over their eyes with a lot of that. It's essentially back to normal. You know, there's no travel requirements. If you want to come over here, you just come over here now. There's nothing. Um, New Zealand was even worse than us um, and even more restrictive. I just recently went to New Zealand um, on a hunt for a shemi on the New Year's period done that nothing just traveling it's all sort of back to normal which for me 
such a relief. You know, it's just, it's back to normal. I can't foresee anything else crazy happening, you know, but for that period there, yeah, it was was a little bit silly. Dang. I have a couple Australian people that I'm like a fanboy of. Tia Claire Toomey. Crossfitter. You guys, yeah, you guys might know about her. She's like so dominant in the, in the CrossFit world. And she's a total badass. And there's a couple other Aussies that are just in the CrossFit space. I'm like, I just love the way they talk. They're all positive, hardworking, love them. And then there's this dude, I don't know his name. I follow him on Instagram. He's got his own show on Netflix and he's up in the Northern Territory. Um, have you seen this dude? What sort of what sort of sphere we're talking in? Salt Crocs, man. Salt water crocs. Not he's really on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. And I love watching his stuff on his little show that he's got there. Um, Just gnarly and mad respect for salt crocs, man. Yeah. Yeah. Dinosaurs, man. Dinosaurs. They're fascinating, man. And like, even when he just goes up to feed the ones that he's like kind of taken care of, he's rescued or whatever, he's got these little like fences and ponds and like, I mean, they just sit underwater basically staring, knowing every step you take, like you said earlier. And then he just holds out the meat on a stick and they just jump out of the water, grab the meat and go back in. And I'm just like, dude, you, you have no chance against a saltwater croc ever. Like you have no chance. And the patience of those animals is incredible. They will sit there for days on end, just waiting in ambush. And they win out in the end, you know, like I, I think the lifespan on crocodiles is pretty crazy as well. I think they live a really long time as well. So um, but those animals like apex, apex predators, man. Yeah. No. And when you said you went up north and I, and I fought, you did a really good job documenting. I doubt you had cell phone service much of it, but you definitely did a great job documenting. And I, just so you know, like as one of your followers, I eat that stuff up. So keep doing that, man. I live vicariously through you and I love your adventures. So um, what's your Instagram? So those can go check you guys out. All you listeners out there, go check this dude out. He's like one of my favorite follows. Yeah, so my Instagram is Nick Morton with three underscores on the bottom. Then we have Nexus Bow Hunting, Atlas Wild Bow Hunting only if you want to check out those pages on there. Um, and for the Aussie, uh, sorry, for you guys out there who are wanting to check out more Aussie stuff, one of the guys um, that we've sort of worked with for a bunch of years, Steve Colley, he's probably the Aussie who shoots more animals and does more hunting than anyone out here. He has a YouTube and an Instagram channel called Hunt Life. He's uploading hunts every single week on there. There's a bunch of awesome content. If guys want to check that out, it's Hunt Life on YouTube. You guys will get a kick out of that because Steve does a bunch of hunting, man. That's cool, dude. Well, when you come to the States, we will have to connect. Um, I don't care what, I mean, Montana ain't that far from me. Probably ain't going to meet you in Colorado, but I'd meet you in Montana or whatever just to meet you, say hi, uh, help you pack out. So I'll get you my information and uh, guys, check this dude out. Appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Awesome. Guys, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. We appreciate your support. We know you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. So thanks for choosing ours. We hope you learned something. We hope you leave inspired, motivated, excited, and more determined to chase your goals in 2023. This podcast is brought to you by NUMA Outdoors. We do have a discount code. It's ElkShape20. It takes 20% off your purchase. Vortex Optics, we have two discount codes. The first one being for EuroOptic.com. If you're in the market for a rangefinder, bino, spotter from Vortex, in 
enter the discount code ELK10 and it'll take 10% off. Also, Vortex Wear. A lot of the stuff I wear around the house is Vortex Wear. And why wouldn't you? The discount code is ELKSHAPE. Takes 20% off Vortex Wear. Onyx Hunt, become an elite member, especially with application season. You want to have access to Hunt Reminder so you don't miss a draw deadline, as well as Top Rut so you can get accurate, up-to-date draw odds, plus study your maps all in one. Discount code ELKSHAPE. Takes 20% off elite memberships. Matthews Archery out of Sparta, USA. Shooting the phase four, 29 and 33. Leaning towards the 29 for elk season just because it's a little more compact. And they just nailed it out of the park. They continue to make these teeny tiny incremental adjustments to these bows and they're more streamlined and quieter and dead in the hand. MagView Digiscoping. This is the magnet. So it slaps on the back of your phone and you can digiscope through your spotter or binos. Discount code ElkShape takes 10% off. This is super slick. You don't need a phone case. Check out MagView. Link in the show notes. I've been running Kafaru since 2019. I've never looked back. I've tried a lot of different backpacks. There is not a better frame on the market than Kufaru. So check them out. I do think the Hoodlum is probably the best bag for elk hunting because you can go day hunt or multiple nights, get a spike camp bag. Also check out their Kafaru hip quiver. I use that a lot for shooting in the backyard. Kafaru International. Now they're out of Wyoming, made in the USA. Crispy boots. I'm rocking the Colorado twos and the Laponia twos. Those are my go-tos. And I always put sheep feet in my boots. I take out the insole. Sheep feet, I have a discount code. It is elk shape. It takes 10% off. And that is a solid investment for custom orthotics that will keep your feet happier. And happy feet means that you're going to get into more elk. Wilderness Athlete super clean brand. I take a multi fish oil midnight build. I take their protein. I take their brute strength post workout. And I think they make super clean products. We have a discount code. It is still elk shape 22 for the time being. Check the show notes to see any changes to that. 30% off your first purchase. Discount code ElkShape22. Wilderness Athlete, a supplement company, not a marketing company. Another dope brand made in the USA is Marsupial. They make the best vinyl harness out there, period. I've tried so many, and the Marsupial is in a league of its own. Uh, you can also customize it to whatever binos that you're rocking. Check out Marsupial's website to learn more. This is made in America, and this is something that I find to be overlooked in a lot of instances. So check out Marsupial's vinyl harness. They have some other bow cases, hand warmers, gun cases, and again, made in the USA. Black Rifle Coffee Company. Coffee is life. And I love this brand. I love what they stand for. They're pro-American, pro-2A. They make really good coffee. You can have coffee delivered to your door, and you can have it in a cadence that suits how much coffee you drink. Make sure you try the Just Black. That's probably my all-time favorite. Flying Elk is number two. But try them all. See which ones you dig and support BRCC. The discount code is ElkShape. We'll take 15% off. Baku e-bikes out of Ogden, Utah. E-bikes for me is more of a lifestyle. Like, um, my wife has one. I have one. Date nights, a lot of times there's just an e-bike ride up a mountain, watch a sunset, maybe have an adult beverage. But also I use them for whitetail hunting, getting in and out of tree stands or checking trail cameras. Uh, maybe some spring bear hunting and logging roads and a little bit of elk hunting. But the bottom line is wear legal. They're awesome. They have class one, two, or three options in one bike itself. I recommend the Mule. Get a thousand water. And discount code Elkshape will take $300 off that investment. Last but not least, BlackOvis.com. That's where I get all my gear and I use my own discount code. It is Elkshape. It'll take 10% off free shipping and world-class customer service. Rep Fitness is the workout gear that I utilize in my gym. I do have an affiliate link. I don't have a discount code for them, but they are more affordable than other brands and free shipping. And believe me, when you're shipping workout gear, you're going to want free shipping because freight will kill you. So check out Rep Fitness. They're out of Denver, Colorado. Crossover symmetry for the shoulders. Discount code Elkshape will take 20% off. Get the hip halo band as well as their shoulder kit. Get all of it and do your prehab so you don't have to do rehab. Alien Gear Holsters, I have a link in the show notes. You can enter the discount code Elkshape10 to get 10% off any holster. Guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the companies that support us. We'll catch you on the next one.